And uh, welcome everyone this morning. It's good to see, as usual, the back row is pretty full and the front row is it's vacant territory down here. <laughs> good work. Well, I, no. there's, there's a couple of fine young people sitting down the front row. Welcome this morning, everyone. It's great to be together on Christmas Day. We're never kind of 100% sure whether um, Christmas services are going to be uh, well attended or not so well attended, but the representation we have here this morning indicates the desire that um, families have to get together, that followers of Jesus have to get together to give thanks today as we remember the occasion of our God becoming human, living amongst us. So welcome, especially uh, a big welcome to you if you're visiting with friends or family. And I look around and I see a few who are obviously in that category. We want to welcome too those who are watching us online and there's a significant cohort of people who typically do that and uh, a number, of course, who are away as well. Just a couple of announcements uh, for us today. Um, we do want to say a very special welcome, and I nearly overlooked this one, to anyone here from our Albury congregation. And I know there are a few here. We're not running a service in Albury this morning. And so it's good to be together. And in light of the opportunity to be together, for those who are here for this next week, next Sunday, we won't be running a service in the morning here or in Albury. We'll be doing our picnic over in Norial Park and uh, that'll be from about 11 o'clock in the morning. So keep that in mind if you'd like to join us for that great opportunity to get together. Bring all your own stuff, bring your own food, your chairs, your blankets, um, balls, games, whatever you want to bring, and uh, join with us as we gather over there for a time of fellowship. Just as we do gather today too, uh, let me just let you know if you are a visitor here with us after our service. Typically we do tea and coffee. Our coffee machine is up and running this morning. Uh, no charge today for our coffee or our tea or our uh, hot chocolate. Feel free to make a donation, of course, but uh, we're not expecting that. So uh, we've come equipped with enough, uh, enough. what should, shall we say, ingredients, whatever the right word is, to be able to cope with that. So we encourage people to take advantage of that. I always think that on Christmas Day everyone wants to race off to other things and to other activities and whatnot but that may not necessarily be the case. So feel free to take advantage of uh, that gathering together. We're going to pray and then uh, I want to share some stories with you as we gather today. But let's pray together, shall we? And on this special day, Lord Jesus, we come to give glory to you. In our hearts, in our minds, we imagine the baby born in Bethlehem, a baby born into very poor circumstances in terms of the way we might think about the process, born to parents who were struggling to find somewhere to stay, accommodation that was um, full everywhere they went, and accommodation for you, Lord Jesus, that was, uh, that, that was really quite out of the ordinary. Our minds <clears throat> imagine you, Lord Jesus, growing up as a young person too, uh, taking in all of the things of the world, watching what was going on around you and as you grew in wisdom and stature too, were equipped by our Heavenly Father for the ministry that you performed. And so we thank you that we have the opportunity today to remember the baby, the man, the Saviour and our Lord. 
Today, Lord Jesus, we come to worship with a song of thanks in our hearts and on our lips, songs of redemption, songs of hope, songs of renewal. And as we do gather today, we pray for joy in our hearts, for it is a time to be joyful. We thank you for the hope that is firmly anchored in our faith and trust in you, God. And we ask that you'll help us to love and to forgive just as you have loved and forgiven in these troubled times. Father, we ask too for what might seem to be impossible, peace on earth, peace, reconciliation between people, peace and reconciliation between people and yourself. In accordance with your will, as it's stated in the scriptures, Lord, we would pray that none would be lost, but that all would come to a knowledge of you as Lord. And so today, as we spend time with family and friends, as we think about uh, others, perhaps who we are far from, we ask for the salvation of all our family, all members and friends. And we pray indeed for your blessing upon all people in our world today. Today in our world filled with such abundance but also such desperate need, may there be bread on the tables for those who are hungry, love for those who feel unloved, healing for those who are unwell, protection for our children and the vulnerable, wisdom for our youth, for our leaders, for those who have authority over us. We pray for the forgiveness of sin and the abundant life that you promised through Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with your love and your power, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. One of the great um, blessings that I experienced as a young person was uh, growing up in a youth organisation called the Boys' Brigade, and I thought I'd show you a photo of a much younger, perhaps less handsome, um, David, <laughs> who, uh, who went right through. Well, I understand, actually, there was a Boys' Brigade here in Wodonga too for a number of years, and I've seen some of the records and some of the photos, both Boys' Brigade and Girls' Brigade. It was, uh, it was, they were great times. And perhaps of all of the things that we did, the things that I enjoyed the most was going camping. And I tip my hat to the leaders, both men and some women, who on weekends, perhaps three or four times a year, would take us, we would turn up at the church with our tents and our bags and our luggage, chuck them in the back of a car and we'd drive off somewhere into uh, the hinterland of Melbourne or out into regional Victoria somewhere. Friday night we'd set up our tents, Saturday night we'd play games, we'd do stuff, uh, we'd cook food, we'd eat food, we'd play more games, we'd do devotions and then by Sunday afternoon we'd all come home tired and grumpy back to our parents who probably didn't uh, appreciate our demeanour when we returned. I had a very good friend who, uh, who coincidentally was one day younger than me. His name was Bill. His, his full name was William Frederick Morgan, but no one ever called him that. We always called him Bill. And, uh, and Bill and I were best mates. And so our arrangement was very simple. Uh, we would take a small tent each, just a little two-man tent. One tent we would throw our bags and our food in. And typically, the way Bill and I organised it was this. We would organise it so that we did not actually have to cook across the weekend. Now, that was smart because on occasions uh, you got rain and if you were cooking on a campfire, uh, that was problematic. And so we would have our food all ready and uh, we would put all our stuff in one tent and we would sleep in the other tent where we could talk all night, do all that kind of stuff. That's good fun. Uh, but ha having said that, 
Um, typically, one of the things that we would do um, when we were out there camping was light a campfire, something that's getting harder and harder to do nowadays, isn't it? There's a lot of places where you can't do that. So in lieu of that, I thought, this morning, let's have a campfire. And here is one I've prepared earlier, just so that um, we can kind of get into the mood uh, for a little bit of camping today. It's not quite as dramatic as it could be, but I didn't want to burn the church down. Campfire is really handy because you can cook on it. And even though Bill and I typically didn't take much food to cook, we almost always took with us a loaf of bread. Because when you're a growing boy, uh, a loaf of bread is absolutely the kind of stuff that you can just fill yourself up with. And parents were more than happy to spend a dollar or two on a loaf of bread and send you off to camp. Now, the question, of course, came around at breakfast time, how are you going to cook your toast on the campfire? Has anyone ever faced this problem? There's a couple of ways that you can do it. Let me just extract a slice of bread here so we can actually put this into practice. You could grab your toast, uh, grab your, whoops, crumbs. Uh, you could grab your bread and kind of hold it like this. Typically the campfire uh, was roaring away, pretty warm. Uh, you could do that. That's not a good plan. Anyone tried that? No, I didn't think anyone had tried that, but anyway, it's not a good plan. You could get a bit of a stick or something and sort of jam it into your bread and hold it, but then typically what happens is as the bread starts to dry out a bit, it falls into the fire, that's the end of that bit of bread, it becomes charcoal. So uh, we invented, I don't actually claim this as an invention, we, we actually uh, discovered a way of creating a, a foolproof toasting fork. And this morning I want to share the patent with you. This is how it works. All you needed to do was rummage around in the bush somewhere and grab yourself a piece of number eight fencing wire. <laughs> now, I know why you are laughing. Because you are thinking, yeah, teenage boys, gone off into the bush, found a farmer's fence, took a bit of wire out of it with a pair of pliers. I can see someone down here going like that. We did not do that, let me just... Because we were a Christian organisation. <laughs> So what we used to do is find a piece of fencing wire, take it home and use it time and time again. Uh, number eight's particularly useful because it's a little bit softer than uh, the new stuff that you get nowadays, which is high tension. You can hardly do this with high tension wire, although if your hands are strong enough, you can. So we take our fencing wire, a couple of strategic bends, just like this, and I'll be prepared to sell this to anyone later on. <laughs> um, you could take your, uh, your piece of bread drop it into your instant toaster, and there you go. And so if the fire was roaring, you could get a piece of fencing wire that was two metres long and stand right back and toast your toast. Now, let me just give you a little demonstration of something I've prepared for you earlier, because here we go. Look at that. This toasting fork actually just needs a little bit of a modification, but there we go. Here we go. Look at that. Isn't that terrific? <laughs> Easy job to do. Now, this all sounds terrific, but there's one terrible flaw with this plan. I'm going to just get Josh to hold that one there, if you don't mind, for a second, because here's the problem. Let me just whip up another toasting fork. I'm seeing if I can... I'll make a fortune after the service, because you'll be <laughs> rushing me afterwards just to grab these to take them home. Anyone going camping this week? <laughs> For you, sir, I'll do a special deal today. 
Two for the price of one. Okay, so Josh is sitting there toasting away and, uh, and I'm sitting there toasting away. Uh, the trouble is what sometimes happened when you did this, let's just... That's what happened. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. You've just... You've got your toast somewhere sitting out here at, at arm's length and if you were not careful, uh, you, would, you, you would be cooking away and it wouldn't be cooked or it would be burnt. And trying to get around so that you could see it, like, oh, there goes another one. So Bill and I worked out this strategy. He would sit on the opposite side of the fire to me. Just as Joshua, uh, Josh down here is doing. And so we could toast away and I'd be looking at his and I'd say, yeah, a little bit, looking okay. And he'd be looking at mine saying, got a fair way to go, David. And so on. Now, it didn't work like that for everyone because occasionally if you got someone like Josh who wasn't particularly good with you, <laughs> you would be cooking your toast and he'd be saying, oh, a little bit more, a little bit more. Smoke starting to rise. A little bit more, and by the time he said, yeah, that's done, it wasn't done, it was actually charcoal. So the issue, you can keep that toast too, by the way, just <laughs> The issue that you had to, uh, to figure out was who was there in that group that you could trust? Who could you have faith in? Who could you rely on to advise you accurately about the way that your toast was done? And of course, if you had a trustworthy person, you could say, I like mine lightly done or I like mine nicely brown. Or if you were particularly strange, you could have yours black like that other one. I was desperately trying not to set the smoke alarm off in the admin building yesterday when I cooked that. <laughs> Who can you trust? That's one of the perennial questions we face, isn't it? Because in our times, uh, we live in an era where uh, that question is very much front and centre for us and uh, it, it particularly difficult perhaps even more so nowadays than it was before because we transact so much of our, our activity online. So much of our lives is done kind of through our telephones or through the internet or whatnot. We move money around, sometimes large sums of money around. I don't know about you, uh, from time to time I get a text message saying, you know, you, you have failed to pay those tolls. And I'm thinking, what tolls? There's no tolls in Wodonga. Uh, but I'm sure there are some of you, if you've travelled to Melbourne and you've got a, a, an account down there with um, whatever it is, the toll people, um, you'll get those scam ones and you think, oh, is this real or is it not? Or is this from the bank or is it not? There's also, in fact, there are literally thousands of people out there, aren't there, intentionally trying to find a way of taking your money away from you. And so the question of who do you trust is even more critical in our day than it was a generation ago. Just this week I've been reading a book. Uh, it's largely... Uh, speaking about the American political context and the changing face of, uh, of culture. And the author makes a very disturbing point. And the disturbing point is this, that in terms of journalism in the West, and he's writing specifically to the American context, many journalists have given up any pretense of impartiality, objectivity or neutrality in reporting the news. In other words, they will write what suits the agenda that they have or the agenda of their employer or whatever. So the question then becomes, how do you trust what's reported in the news? How do you have faith in what you hear? Where does the truth really lie? 
Which brings us to a really uncomfortable reality, and that is that objective truth, as we've traditionally understood it, is under attack. There's a quote I uh, read this week from Sydney University, some research that they've been doing, which says this, we live in what is being called the age of post-truth, where perhaps the greatest problem is not the fact that politicians and leaders are inclined to tell lies, that's always been the case, but that a large percentage of the population are willing to believe the lies despite all the evidence to the contrary. That's rather interesting, isn't it? The question of who to trust was very much at the heart of a question that Jesus asked his disciples on one occasion as they walked amongst the villages of Caesarea Philippi. You'll find this story in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 31. Jesus and his disciples were up in an area that was predominantly a pagan area, a centre of pagan worship, the cave that you see pictured here. Uh, once upon a time had a spring issuing forth from it and so the people would come and worship because they believed the source of life was found in there. And the question that Jesus asked was answered by that enigmatic disciple Peter, that disciple who, who on the one hand uh, we want to be in some ways because he was so brave and courageous but on other, in other ways we don't want to be because he put his foot in his mouth so many times. Peter, who made such memorable declarations, lodged impossible requests, was involved in some embarrassing blunders, was instrumental to and witnessed perhaps the greatest Christian revival in history and went on to be one of the most influential of the apostles, answered the question. And the question that Jesus asked as he was walking with his disciples was this, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say I am? That's a safe question, isn't it? Because as you think about the answer, you don't have to play your cards, so to speak. You can talk about what other people think. On very rare occasions, and it's only happened once or twice here in Wodonga, which is probably a testimony to the church here, uh, someone will come in and speak to me about some sort of issue that they're concerned about or they don't like in the church. You know, they don't like the colour of the chairs or something, I don't know. And so they'll come in and say this... Um, there's a few people in the church who are a bit concerned about whatever it might be. And I'll say, oh, really? Which people? Because that's actually code for, I don't really like that, or whatever it might be. And so the question that's asked here, who do the people say, is actually quite a safe question. And in some senses, if you are answering that question about Jesus, it is a safe question because you can call on the great body of knowledge that there is out there to answer that question without actually owning any of that knowledge yourself, right? Who do the people say that Jesus was? Well, these scholars say this and these researchers say this and this is what I've heard from someone. You can answer those questions without having any investment in who Jesus is yourself. And that's quite safe, isn't it? But then Jesus went on to ask the next question after that first question, who do the people say I am? He asked the next question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I can't help but wonder whether in that moment the disciples looked at one another and wondered who was going to answer because it's a critical question. It's actually the question that determines your relationship with God. It's the question that determines what's going to happen to you in life beyond this life. It's a question that determines how you will live now, actually. Who do you say that I am? 
And to be fair, as we read the book of Mark, which is a book that's very, very quick and racy, there's no hint of hesitation in Peter's response. And perhaps it was the bold and impetuous Peter who spoke up and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that God has sent to be the saviour of the world. And Peter's not just blurting that out for no reason. He's actually basing it on the evidence. Remember that quote from a moment ago. People believe stuff despite the evidence. Peter answered that question on the basis of the evidence that he'd seen. Because if you back up in the book of Mark, you'll find that there are events recorded uh, just very recently in the experience that Peter's had where Jesus actually healed a blind man. Now, that might seem like a fairly ordinary kind of a miracle, but a Jewish person immediately would have pricked up their ears and <clears throat> literally opened their eyes. Because if they knew their scriptures back in Isaiah, it speaks about a time when the day of the Lord will come, where the blind will be made to see, where the deaf will be able to hear. And so there's some kind of indication that something special is going on when Jesus heals a blind man. And Peter's noticed that. Peter's taken notice of that. So much so that when Peter wrote, uh, uh, sorry, when Peter was speaking to the crowds in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we have this recorded for us, he was preaching to a huge crowd of people. He said, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him as you know. In other words, God showed us the Messiah through the signs and the actions that he did. Peter sees the evidence. And that's who Peter saw when he looked at Jesus. Over these past couple of weeks, we've been talking about who do you see? We talked a little bit about Simeon, that righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We have a record of him in the scriptures, a guy who was hanging around because the Holy Spirit had said to him, you're not going to die until you've seen the one I'm going to send. And he did. He saw the Messiah. And when he looked at the Messiah, what did he see? He saw the Saviour. Just yesterday, it seems like an age ago, uh, I talked about uh, uh, Herod, King Herod the Great, the king who was uh, the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. Who did he see when Jesus was born? Well, not the Messiah, but a threat to his throne. And again, when we come to Peter, the question is, who did he see? He saw the Messiah. And so today, as we celebrate the coming of the Messiah into human history, the question before everyone here is this, who do you see when you see Jesus? Many are happy to see the baby in the manger, the image which is reproduced on a million Christmas cards, probably seared into our memory but the birth narratives are the evidence that in his infinite wisdom, God entered human history in human form. Do you see the baby who is the king? Do you see Jesus, the rabbi, engaged in his ministry, walking from village to village, as we have a record there in Mark chapter 8, moving from town to town, teaching the people, healing the sick, releasing those imprisoned by demonic possession, releasing them from the chains of oppression that, uh, that had held them down? Do you see the one who again and again and again by his actions demonstrated that he was truly God? Do you see the one who reached down to the paralysed man and said, stand up and walk, my son, your sins are forgiven? And in saying that actually did something and said something that only God can do because who apart from God can forgive sins? 
Do you see Jesus, the one who is God, bringing life to the lifeless? Do you see the one who taught but taught with authority, whose message was filled at once with grace and love, but also a message to be done with legalism and works-based theology, a message that comes with a challenge, with a call to obedience? Do you see the one who, in full submission to his heavenly Father, walked the road to the cross where he was beaten and chained and tortured and put to death as a criminal, but in dying took, him, uh, took our sins upon himself. And do you see the one who was raised back to life, whose resurrection body was seen by hundreds, evidence of a, a, a living saviour, and in being raised back to life, defeated the final enemy death? Do you see the one who in the face of our crisis of knowing who to trust said these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Do you see the one that Paul wrote about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, which described what Paul saw when he looked at Jesus? Karen's going to read this passage for us before we pray. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fulfilness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thank you, Karen. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, again today it is you that we exalt, the one who was before creation and through whom all things were created. Lord, we marvel at your humility in being prepared to come as a helpless, dependent, vulnerable baby into our world. We thank you for the example of humility that we might follow in our lives. We thank you for your example of obedience as you grew up in, in willing submission to your Father's will and carried that right through to the time when you were put to death. Lord, grant that we too might submit to you with a willingness, with an obedience that is pleasing to you, is desired by you and glorifies you. And Lord, this morning my prayer too again is that no person might walk out of here without having addressed that question, who do you say Jesus is? For it truly is the question upon our eternal destiny hinges. It's the question that we have to address. It's a question that we can't ignore. And so, Lord God, speak your words 
of challenge, your words of peace, your words of forgiveness, your words of grace, your words of love to the hearts of each one gathered here today. As we continue to worship you through song, as we continue to worship you in the fellowship that we enjoy together, be glorified in this place, we pray. As we go from here into activities, perhaps with others, perhaps with family, perhaps not, may this be a special day as we celebrate your goodness to us, that gift of life and love. Jesus the baby, Jesus the saviour, Jesus the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are our Lord. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.